Jonah uh, chapter 1, 17 to chapter 2, 10 read for us. Thanks, Dan. And then Keith will come forward and uh, give us today's sermon. Thanks. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 17, and then we're going to read all of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, from God, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. Going to make it a reasonable height. Good morning, everyone. open in front of you. It'll be really handy. Uh, And let's pray before we open up God's word together. Uh, Gracious Father, we ask that you would incline our hearts to your word, uh, that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that you have prepared for us in there. Unite our hearts to fear your name uh, and satisfy us with your grace. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we left Jonah uh, treading water in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, He might be getting a bit tired by now. Uh, God had called his prophet to go from Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, that great superpower of the 8th century BC, uh, to uh, go to Nineveh, this wicked and violent people because their evil had come up before the face of the Lord. God had appointed to go, uh, appointed Jonah to go to Nineveh and to tell them that the judgment of Yahweh, the God of Israel, was coming against them. Jonah, however, didn't like that idea. And so rather than head to Nineveh, Jonah head in completely the opposite direction. Uh, we watched him hop a boat Uh, to Tarshish, running away, he thinks, from the presence of the Lord and he hopes from what God has asked him to do. But we saw that Jonah learned very quickly, didn't he, that hopping on a boat is not the best way to run away from the God who created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Who would have guessed it? Uh, The Lord had prepared a storm as judgment on Jonah, a storm that threatens the lives of all the men on the ship. And Jonah knows 
uh, that this is God's judgment on him. And so he tells the sailors to throw him overboard, to sacrifice him so that they can be saved. And as Jonah sinks like a stone beneath the waves, descending into the depths of God's judgment, he finds out that even here in the heart of the ocean, he hasn't been able to escape God's presence. There is nowhere that you can go to escape from God and his judgment. But neither is there any way, anywhere you can go to escape God's grace. God is determined to show grace to Nineveh, and he's determined to show it through this reluctant prophet, Jonah. And his determination to show grace is the big point of this passage, and as we said last week, the big point of the book. Uh, As we put it last week, God is the evangelist, isn't he? Or as Jonah puts it at the end of his song, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the first thing we see in this passage is that God provides salvation for Jonah. But it is a very strange kind of salvation, isn't it? God sends Jonah a saviour in the form of this great fish. And we see that at the end of chapter 1 in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And now this is the point of Jonah, I think, where it kind of stretches believability a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, For our modern minds, it seems that maybe Jonah has crossed from fact into fiction at this stage. Our temptation, maybe as Christians, can be to to rationalise what's going on here. Uh, You know, well, uh, a humpback whale, it has quite quite a big mouth, maybe a, a person could fit in there. But I think when we start to do things like that, when we try and rationalise this story and make it more believable, actually I think we've missed the point a little bit. I think this story is actually meant to stretch the limits of what we understand and what we believe. And I think it does that because by using such a strange saviour to rescue Jonah, God shows us very clearly that salvation is entirely in his hands. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, think for a moment about how completely and totally lost Jonah is at this point. He's been thrown into the water. His ship has sailed off over the horizon. All he can see in any direction is water. Swimming lessons, they weren't part of the Hebrew public school curriculum. He's not a good swimmer. And so it doesn't take too long for Jonah before he's absolutely exhausted. And he starts sinking down beneath the waves. He's gasping for mouthfuls of air, but all he gets is water and his lungs start to fill. And Jonah contributes absolutely nothing to his salvation, does he? God doesn't kind of power him up to swim like Ian thought back to uh, the shore. He's entirely a passenger here. He can't claim any part of his rescue for himself. There's no boasting in his salvation, is there? God doesn't send a passing ship to reach down and fish him out of the water. Then he'd owe credit for his rescue to someone else, wouldn't he? He'd have to praise the ship. But a giant fish in the middle of the Mediterranean can only come down to God's incredible grace. This fish 
in this exact spot at this exact time, taking a big gulp. Such a strange saviour in the absence of all other hope shows Jonah and shows the Ninevites and shows us the great grace of Jonah's God and of our God. And just like Jonah's strange saviour, God gives us a strange salvation too. When we are completely beyond hope, God gave his son to die in weakness and in shame. It's a strange salvation, isn't it? But it's a salvation that perfectly suits our desperate need. It's a salvation to which we contribute nothing. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just like Jonah, our salvation is all God's work and none of ours. We are all sinking, every one of us, beneath the waves of a judgment that is of our own making. All of us are facing God's judgment and God's wrath because we've run from him, but no matter how far we've run, even in the depths of the ocean, God is still there and he provides a saviour who is exactly who we need. Jonah needs a fish and we need a crucified Messiah. God provides strange salvation. Uh, Jonah recognises that this uh, salvation must come from God alone, completely out of his grace. And so from verse 2 in chapter 2, we get to hear Jonah's response. And it's at this point that Jonah actually becomes a musical. Uh, Jonah starts to sing a strange song. Uh, Imagine the stage. It's pitch black shrouded in darkness and then a single spotlight beams down on a lonely figure who is sitting ankle deep in whale stomach juice uh, surrounded by rotting fish draped with seaweed Uh, and this lonely figure begins to sing a song I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me I'm not going to sing it for you you have to imagine that out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to to, uh, vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, That's Jonah's song. It's a strange song. It's a strange song, I think, not because of its theology. Uh, In fact, I think all of the things that Jonah says about God are true. Uh, Jonah's actually quoting some psalms. This 
structurally, you could call this a, a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a strange song, not because of its theology, but because I think, in the context of the whole book, I'm not sure Jonah actually believes what he's saying. I think Jonah's living in la-la land a little bit. And actually, I think if we we see this, this is the key to understanding the whole book of Jonah. Uh, Let's have a look at what he says, and, uh, and we'll see, I hope, why I don't think Jonah really gets God's grace. He doesn't understand the radical, undeserved nature of God's salvation. See, first, as Jonah begins sinking down under the waves, taking what he thinks are going to be his final breaths, he realises how desperate his situation is. Up to this point, it seems like Jonah's been willing to cop it for his rebellion against God, doesn't it? He's been angry at God for asking him to go to Nineveh, and so he's rebelled. He's run away from God, and if that means he's got to cop the consequences of that, well, so be it. He would rather die than turn around and go and preach to Nineveh. And yet at the last minute, as his life flashes before his eyes, it seems that Jonah has had a change of heart. And he calls out from his desperate need for help. You see, it seems that Jonah is happy for God to show grace when it's his life on the line. He's not particularly concerned with the sailors whose lives he threatened. He doesn't want to go and preach the gospel to Nineveh, but when it's his life on the line, Jonah is happy for God to show grace. Because here, he finds himself in the belly of Sheol, he says. And the sea is becoming his tomb. Uh, He's sinking into the deep beyond the hope of any help. The waters close in to take his life. The seaweed wraps itself around him and his life begins to faint away. You see, the sea is the perfect metaphor for Jonah. As he's dragged down to the bottom of the Mediterranean, Jonah acknowledges that this is God's doing and God is sending him to Sheol, to the place of the dead. It's you, God, Jonah says, you who have cast me into the deep. These are your waves, God, that are pushing me down. And I'm going down into the place of judgment where its bars will close over me forever. And undoubtedly, you and I know, don't we, that Jonah is in this situation because of his own rebellion against God. He's here because of his sin. And yet he doesn't utter a word of confession or repentance, does he? In Jonah's mind, he's in this situation entirely because it's God who has put him here. God has cast him into the deep. These are God's waves and billows that crash down on him. God is the one who has driven him from his sight. And yet not a word about his own place in these events that have brought him here running away from God, failing to repent while he was on board the ship. And yet despite his lack of repentance, as Jonah sinks down into the depths of the ocean, God still breaks in. Jonah has called for help and the Lord answers. He hears his cry and he brings Jonah's life up from the pit, right at the gates of Sheol, at the gates of death and judgment, God sends this great fish to save him. Even there, 
where Jonah says he is driven from God's sight. God is there ready to show grace to his reluctant prophet. Jonah has been snatched from the jaws of death and he only has God to thank for it. And yet still, the focus of Jonah's prayer is really himself, isn't it? Jonah is the focus of his prayer. The way that he has prayed to God, the vows that he has vowed, the sacrifices that he will offer. God's rescue of him gets one line in verse 6. Otherwise, Jonah's prayer is really all about himself, isn't it? And as he closes his prayer, his song, Jonah ends with this rather flattering comparison between himself and those who worship idols. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now what he says, again, is it's 100% true. Jonah's theology is good. Clinging to vain idols is futile. You will find no grace, no steadfast love, no unfailing committed love with idols. Nothing that we give our time or our energy or our attention and efforts to, our families or our careers or our reputation or sexual pleasure or comfort or any of those things will satisfy us with unfailing steadfast love. That can only be found in the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows that everyone who clings to idols forfeits the hope of eternal joy. But do you notice how Jonah says that? Which idol worshippers do you think he's talking about? Given what has just happened in chapter 1, he's talking about the sailors, isn't he? The sailors who have thrown him over the over the side of the ship, these idol-worshipping pagans. But Jonah thinks, I'm not like them. I'll sacrifice and I'll make vows to the Lord. I'm a Hebrew. Remember, that's what he said to the sailors. I'm one of God's covenant people. And that's why he saved me. The irony is that while Jonah's sinking down below the waves, the sailors up above, they'd turned to God for mercy, hadn't they? They called on him, they offered sacrifices, they vowed vows to the Lord. They humbled themselves before the Lord and God saved them. He showed them the steadfast love and the mercy that Jonah is here taking for granted. Because salvation really does belong to the Lord. He's the one who saves, and he's ready to save whoever asks. No matter how far they've run, regardless of what they've done, no matter how close to sinking down beneath the waves, God is always there. He's always ready to give grace to anyone who repents, who confesses their sin and turns back to God. And he's done that for the sailors, hasn't he? And for all his fancy talk, I'm not sure Jonah gets that. I don't think Jonah actually gets God's grace. His song mentions himself more than it mentions God. And what it never mentions is his sin or an apology 
or a confession or turning away from what he's done. Jonah thinks he deserves God's salvation. Jonah thinks God rescued him because he's an Israelite and he deserves it. Because he's going to pay what he's vowed to pay. He thinks he deserves God's rescue. And that's why Jonah will have no compassion on Nineveh, as we'll see in the following chapters. He's seen God's absolute power. He's realised that he can't outrun God. Even in the depths of the sea, God is there. God's power is enough to provoke him to go to Nineveh. He figures, really, he's got no other choice. He knows that salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord is determined that Jonah will go to Nineveh and preach salvation to them. But while his head knows that truth, his heart definitely isn't in it because Jonah really doesn't get God's grace. And I wonder if that helps us explain our reluctance in evangelism. Could it be that deep down we don't actually get grace? Maybe we think that God saved us because he saw a flicker of potential in us. He just needed to give us a little bit of a boost, a little head start, and then we're off on our own steam. Maybe we think in those moments that we don't talk about out loud that God is actually quite lucky to have us on his side. We're from... Good Christian families, after all, we've been brought up in the church. It's in our blood to be Christians. And other people don't really deserve God's grace. Maybe our friends do because we like them. But those other people with all those other things that they do that we don't like, well, they don't really deserve God's grace like we do. And so we turn the other way when an opportunity comes up to share the gospel with them. If we've ever looked at someone and thought, I'm not sure I want God to forgive that person. I want them to face God's judgment, not his grace. If we've ever thought like that, then I don't think we've really understood just how radical and undeserved God's grace to us is. We haven't quite grasped just how much we don't deserve any of God's goodness to us. It's very easy to look down on Jonah in this book, isn't it? But that's not the point of the book. See, as uncomfortable as it might feel, I think we're actually meant to see something of ourselves in Jonah. Something that we don't like. Something that we shouldn't like. Jonah shows a selfishness and inherent dislike for outsiders that actually lurks deep in all of our hearts. I think naturally, apart from God's intervention, we don't want to share the gospel because it's for us and not for them. Jonah doesn't get God's grace and so he doesn't want to go and preach grace to Nineveh. So how can we make sure that we 
get grace. I think the trick for remembering God's grace and for being gracious to outsiders is to remember what we're like apart from God's grace. Paul writes to Titus about the importance of remembering what we were like before God saved us. Titus 3 verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, that is not even by the best of our works, but according to his own mercy. And practically something that can help is a, a regular practice of confession and repentance before God, the thing that Jonah doesn't do here. Confession and repentance, it's something we should do as Christians, but we don't do enough, I think. If you're like me, then maybe your confession and your repentance is pretty lame. I'm pretty non-specific about what particular sins I've committed. Hesitant to scratch too hard beneath the surface because I don't particularly like what I find there. Not wanting to confess because it means that I'm wrong. But when we fail to do that, we fail to bask in the incredible grace that God shows us when we know we're forgiven. We don't get to see how great his mercy is on us. We don't get to delight in thanking him and praising him. Now let me give you four suggestions for what ongoing confession and repentance might look like. First, I think we need to repent of every sin. When you sin, say sorry to God. Do it straight away. Don't leave it. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't be hesitant and think that God doesn't want to hear from you. He does. So apologise to him. And as you do, reject the sin. Don't hold on to any sense of enjoyment or satisfaction from it. Secondly, I think we need to repent of every temptation. A temptation itself isn't sin, but repentance means turning away from sin and to God. So train yourself to reject sin. When you feel the pull of that temptation, ask for God's help to say no. Turn to Jesus and flee from temptation. Thirdly, I think we need to repent every day. To take time every day to reflect on what's happened that day and repent of any sin that you're aware of. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your sin to you, which is a very scary thing to pray, isn't it? Imagine if he answered that prayer. Perhaps write it down on a bit of paper if that helps you focus and then imagine that record of your sin being nailed to the cross with the Lord Jesus. And fourthly, I think, repent every week. Every week we pray a prayer of confession together, don't we? Make the most of that time. Don't use that time to just close your eyes and think about what you're going to have for lunch afterwards or what's for morning tea. 
pray and rejoice together at the forgiveness that God offers to us as our family. Now, the point of this isn't to wallow in self-hatred and guilt and shame. It's to rejoice in the fact that God offers us free and full forgiveness because of Jesus. That God brings us into his family and makes us heirs of eternal life, even when we are completely unworthy. Keeping that proper view of God's grace, that radical undeserved nature of God's mercy to us in our minds will help us avoid being like Jonah. You're very happy to be rescued by God because we think we deserve it. But full of hatred for everyone else. God's grace to Jonah is bigger than his sin and God's determined to use him as his prophet to Nineveh. And so finally, after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah is unceremoniously vomited back up on the shore. After sinking down to the depths, to the belly of Sheol, to the gates of death, our prophet is raised from the dead after three days and three nights, ready to go and tell Nineveh that salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's this gross moment that Jesus takes up and uses as a sign of his authenticity. Jesus applies Jonah's strange sign to himself in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, the religious leaders, they've come to Jesus asking for a sign, for proof that Jesus is who he claims to be. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you one. The only sign that you will get is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was raised from the brink of death, Jesus will literally be raised from death after three days and three nights in the grave. The sign of Jesus' authenticity, he says, is his resurrection. And everyone who rejects that sign will be condemned. When Nineveh, as we'll see next week, heard Jonah preach, they heard a resurrected prophet. And they believed the sign and they repented. But Jesus' resurrection, he says, won't be enough to convince these Jews. And so they will be condemned on the last day when Jesus judges. They'll be condemned by the Ninevites who heard a resurrected prophet and turned from their sin. Jonah's resurrection was proof to the Ninevites that God is the one who saves by grace. And now one greater than Jonah has come and God has endorsed him by raising him from the grave. Jesus' resurrection is his proof 
that he can offer us true grace and salvation. Salvation comes from the Lord Jesus. Jonah isn't rescued from death by a giant fish because he's a Hebrew. He's not resurrected because he's a prophet of God. Salvation comes to him because God is in the business of saving people. He loves to do it. He delights to save. And if salvation is available to Jonah at the bottom of the ocean, after running as far away from God as he could, then it's available here and now for all of us. If you're here and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, the lesson is that however far you have run away from God, you can't outrun him. His judgment for sin will always find you. And so since you can never run from him, the only thing that makes sense is to instead run to him. Uh, Augustine, the, the fourth century bishop from Hippo in northern Africa, he said this, Since there is one even more deeply inward than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from an angered God except to a God who is pacified. There is absolutely no place for you to flee to. Do you want to flee from him? Rather, flee to him. However low you've gone, however much you've rejected him, he's right there. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows all of your sin. And yet salvation comes from the Lord. All you do is say sorry for running away. Thanks for sending a saviour and please help me to trust and follow you. But if you're a Christian... The lesson is that your salvation is entirely God's grace to you. Your contribution is zero. And you will never progress beyond that. Salvation comes from the Lord. It is by God's grace alone. And remembering that, creating for yourself a habit of confessing your sin, of turning back to God, will help you always to remember salvation comes from the Lord. It is his to give and he loves to give it. And he gives us the great privilege of telling people about it. When we get, when we really understand the truly radical and undeserved nature of God's grace to sinners like us, then we'll know what a joy it is to share that grace with others too, won't we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, salvation indeed does come from you, Lord. No matter how far we've run, no matter what we've done in our lives, you are there and you are ready to show grace. Now, you've given us a saviour who has sunk below the waves of your judgment in our place, who you have raised from the dead after three days and three nights. Thank you that there is salvation in Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would help us to get grace. Help us remember what we're like, what we would be apart from you. Help us to confess and repent.
and help us to bask in the forgiveness that you offer us in Jesus. And help us, knowing grace, to speak about your grace to others because no one is beyond your reach. And we pray this for the glory of the Lord Jesus and in his name. Amen.